What happens when a blind man, a woman of color, and a child of immigrants get together to discuss how diversity, inclusion, and equity affect your business? Hi everybody, welcome to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I'm UB, and I am the Latino white guy of the group. I'm Nina, I am the woman of color in the group. And I'm Mike, I'm uh, the blind guy. Yeah, Nina, go. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, Tina, what I want to know more about, like, let me give you some context from my perspective. Like, I, I uh, was living in New York City um, when 9-11 happened, and um, I was 21 years old, and uh, I think that that's around the time where I started really paying attention to the news. Um, I mean, I've been around those kind of college years is when I started, like, actually paying attention to the world outside of my own little bubble. Same here. Um, and then, you know, on September 12, 2001, I, I became highly aware of how biased the media was. Um, because as a brown woman living in New York City, I had a very different perspective and I did not see my perspective being touted in any of the media that I was watching. So that oh, was yeah. my awakening and opening to the fact that I had to go find other sources of news to see the viewpoints that I felt weren't being covered, right? Like what was actually happening on the ground outside of country, what was happening to Muslim, Hindu, Bangladeshi, brown people in the US was not being covered. Um, and so it was around that time that I started finding like different outlets of news. I, you know, I stopped reading, uh, going to just the New York Times and the Washington Post to get all my information, but I discovered there's a, a blog called Sepia Mutiny back then that was like all voices and writers from the South Asian diaspora writing about those experiences and reporting on it. Um, and I started finding media that was largely by black founders and like them writing about their stories. I mean, how, how do we reconcile that? I mean, it's like in some ideal world, we would have a place where every single journalist is like seen, valued and heard and all together, but at the same time creating these spaces for these voices to be heard. I mean, how do we, how do we kind of mesh those two or should we even? Well. Uh, one of the articles in our book is by a woman from Latin America, and she compares, um, starting from Costa Rica, and she's comparing the media to the environment and saying um, that the threat to the environment is the same as a threat to media. And in both cases, what she's talking about is a lack of um, diversity in the ecosystem. So what you were just talking about, like, okay, you you could find Black-founded uh, media uh, outlets. You could find blogs about the South Asian diaspora. You could also find um, maybe columnists that you like in some of the mainstream outlets. You could find TV shows. You could find radio shows. You could find podcasts, hopefully. If you have a rich media, e media ecosystem like that, where there's a lot of cross-pollination between them, right? Where a writer who used to write for a feminist magazine like Bitch might also get a chance to write for the New York Times op-ed page one day, right? where there's cross-pollination, there's a rich uh, amount of different sources and different diverse uh, places that you can go through, then you have a good system where you can compare and contrast what kind of information you're getting, right? So you might look at, okay, what did the New York Times say? And then be like, okay, well, that's not the view that my podcast I listen to has or that my, um, you know, my favorite blog has or something like that. The problem is, is that, first of all, um, when there's economic hardship in the media community, 
a lot of these little publications get eaten up or go out of business. And as people increasingly don't wish to pay for journalism, that also becomes a problem where the people who suffer from that the most are the smaller outlets. And that's where those spaces uh, that you're talking about become really threatened because places like the New York Times and the Washington Post will always have a chance. They'll always find funding. But the smaller outlets, might, maybe not. So I would say that it's, first of all, if you're a consumer of those kind of things, it's really important to try your best to put your money where your mouth is and support them. The big ones don't need your money as much as the small ones do. Yeah, yeah. And that also uh, is the same for um, newspapers in other countries that you like. I subscribe to The Scroll in India, for example, that has, um, I think, really good uh, news from there that helps you catch up on what's going on there and really cheap membership. And, um, you know, you just can help a little bit. But um, yeah, so first of all, to put your money where your mouth is, to tell other people about the media sites that you like that they might not have heard of because um, it's really cool that you were able to find all those things that spoke to your experience, but there's plenty of people who aren't as savvy media consumers and don't know where to find the stuff that would really speak to them and speak to different voices. So to also speak up and promote stuff when you like it, you know, use what platforms you do have. And on Twitter, for example, to say like, oh my God, have you guys heard this podcast? I love it. Or, um, you know, I'm listening to Good Muslim, Bad Muslim for the first time. It's so incredible. Check it out. To really um, show those places off because places like the New York Times, Washington Post, all the mainstream medias, they get millions of retweets a day all over the world. But the bigger, the smaller ones don't. And that's also true for female voices who are much less often uh, tweeted or quoted in the media than male voices are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mike, you have uh, something to jump in with. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just so tickled with this conversation still. I, but this, the parallel that I'm hearing and what we talk about so often uh, in every one of our episodes, like Ubaldo talked about earlier, you know, like what, giving, you know, examples, what, what can we do that's practical uh, that we can, our audience can take away. And you're really given a, um, what, what we're what we're talking about from a leadership perspective with inside of organizations like we we still know the statistics you know how many how many fortune 500 fortune 1000 companies are uh, led by a white male who's six foot three or taller right like because uh <laughs> there's you know we, that's that's what we think of leadership um but you know and so the numbers are still there you know how many females are uh, in leadership roles in the Fortune 1000 space on board of directors, right? Let alone minorities, and we won't even talk about persons with disabilities. We won't even go there because it's non-existent. So, um, so we still, so but that representation, just like in journalism, when you're talking about an ecosystem, like it's super important because um, the people with disabilities community globally is 800 million strong, and 800 million. And how many times, whether it's in journalism or in business, are we even talking about or representing that community, whether it's journalism or in business? Yeah, absolutely. And those two things connect, right? Because if you don't see representation of people with disabilities uh, in the media, whether that be in entertainment or in journalism, then you wouldn't think that much about them in leadership roles in companies, right? I mean, it, it, these two things build on each other. Um, oh, 100%. So I, yeah. <laughs> I, I I stopped asking organizations, Tina, a long time ago. So how many blind people do you have working for your organization? Because I'll either get the cursory like, oh, we have one, 
And I'm like, you know what, when you're a company of 40,000 people, like that's not worth talking about. Like, you know, like that's like saying, yeah. hey, we have a woman that works for us. Like how yeah. change the narrative on that discussion if you just say we have a token, right? Like that's not representation. Exactly. And I think that part of the mindset shift that needs to happen is rather than people viewing themselves as doing favors to people of color, to people with disabilities, to women by letting them into the halls of power, to recognize that they're hurting themselves by not doing that and that they're doing a less good job than they would do otherwise. If they don't represent the communities around them, if they don't represent the world, and that's that's true for journalism more than anywhere else because your public is not just white men, right? Who graduated from journalism right. school. Your public is the whole public. So if there's whole swaths of the public that you don't speak to, who don't see themselves represented in their newspapers, who don't see their perspectives or their stories being told, then you lose them and you lose then readers, you lose audience, you lose um, subscriptions. But the same is true for, um, this like you know this missing piece this lack is that you um by excluding people hurt your own business because those people can enhance it you know and so this um our author from uh, brazil charles uh, nice who also wrote by the way in portuguese a lot of the authors from this book wrote in, in different languages and we had them translated into english and german so that we wouldn't also miss out on people who have really good points to make but maybe don't speak english or german so Absolutely. that was also something we did to address our own bias to make sure that we allowed different languages in because language bias is also a huge big problem in global media. At any rate, he's talking about how in Brazil, there is actually um, a legal mandate to employ people with disabilities. They have a, um, they address that in their constitution, I think even. And yet when people with disabilities are um, employed, they're often employed in really low levels um, where they don't have a large chance to influence things. So he is, talked uh, about, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Tina, does that remind you of, like, we, we don't even have to go back that far in American history, call it 40 years ago, where, where what were the two or three jobs that women generally held within, with, with, within the employment spectrum, right? They were teachers, right. maybe they were secretaries, right? Like, it, it, so... Like, so again, we're, this is the same relevant conversation about people with disabilities. It's just 2020. Like what, what decade, what century are we going to start overcoming this? We're recognizing that one in five Americans are people with disabilities that are very much part of the, commerce, the, the, the uh, economy. Exactly. And I think maybe that's part of it is having like, you know, coming out a little bit more that people are aware that the people that do different jobs and write things and stuff like that have different disabilities when that's the case. But the other thing is um, really making accommodations to make it possible for these people to work and realizing that you're not doing that out of political correctness, but you're doing it because they bring a unique perspective and can really enhance your workforce. So he mentions that um, uh, he talks to a journalist who's blind, who says that because he thinks that he's a better interviewer because he's blind and that he does a lot of his work on the phone, um, doing interviews with people, which is not that different than what a lot of journalists do. And that of course, when you're on the phone with people, no one can see you and tell the difference anyways, but that he thinks he has a um, better ability to concentrate and really listen in. He's not distracted by his computer or things like that and um, believes that he is better able to um, really listen in on an interview. And as I uh, has said before, as I, I think I mentioned before, 
um, talked about a guy with, who is in a wheelchair who has um, mobility restrictions who reports on um, in Sao Paulo in Brazil about the city, about urban development, about public transportation. And because of the just kind of, um, you know, eye, eye, eye line that he has, he is able to tell a, a different story about the city than other people do. There's this theory that cities should be um, made for people who are eight and 80, that a city that is well-functioning is one where an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old would both feel comfortable, right? Huh. Yeah. And <laughs> someone no, who- We love that. We... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So someone who's in a wheelchair is going to be able to really tell what it's like to be in public transportation for people who would have all kinds of limited mobility and is going to be able to tell a different story on that subject than other people would. And so seeing these um, things that can be perceived as disadvantages also as advantages that give you a unique outlet that also enables you to connect with your readers in a different way. You tell a different kind of story because of who you are and those things that make you also different also make you special. And that's what people are also looking for in journalism is to connect with people with unique perspectives. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. I think that's what most people, they don't want to just read the same thing over and over again in different language. And I think that's what turn a lot of people off about the media is they feel it's the same voices being reproduced over and over and over again in the same fault lines and the same sort of polarizing perspectives. And often when you recognize that there's not two perspectives, but many, many more perspectives than that, you get much more interesting stories that also sometimes aren't so divisive, right? Yeah. I mean, polarization is also contributed to by the fact that I mean, polarizing means two sides, right? If you recognize that there's many more sides to a story that also decreases the polarization, it doesn't give you the easy dividing lines to fight on if you go, well, hold on, I'm coming at it from a totally different angle than either of those two sides are. Man, those are, <laughs> uh, there's so many amazing things that you just said in there. And, and we absolutely align I mean, the, the, what you talked about, you know, the eight and 80 rule, I'll call it, you know, we talk about accessibility and the fact that everyone at one point or another has a disability, whether it's permanent or whether it's temporary. And right. we, we really urge organizations to understand that and to build their environment to support even if it even if you're just building it to support a small handful of people with with permanent physical disabilities you're actually building an environment that becomes really truly inclusive of everybody and you know i, I think you know a lot of leaders who you know when mike's talking to them and and mike says well it's really easy we can there's technology here so a blind and visually impaired person can work here but that leader only sees one person in a sea of a thousand employees. When if they think about it, that just that small effort can do so much for everybody at one point in their career working in that organization. So, I, man, I love that viewpoint. You know, we always talk about, and we can maybe close on on this, but and we could probably schedule another time to keep talking because <laughs> we could go on forever. But we talk about, you know, we've been really focused on empathy during COVID nineteen. And really sure. helping, you know, leaders especially. Uh-oh. I think we lost Yubi's audio. I'm, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was so interested to hear what he had to say, too. No, seriously. He, he starts off with <laughs> leaders, and then we don't get to hear the punchline at all. Can you hear me? 
Now we can. Oh, yeah. there he is. Yeah. You might want to start yeah, over yeah. from the beginning of COVID and business leaders. <laughs> Man, sorry. Okay, yeah. is there an that echo? That was his. Uh, that was his usual beer time for the podcast. Sorry, Dean. So. <laughs> right there. Brought to you by Coors Light. <laughs> But what I was saying was, so we have been focused on helping leaders understand that even though empathy is finite, there is a maturity model that where, where people can actually upskill, if you will, or build their empathy from just what you were kind of referencing earlier, Tina, which was people sort of overlaying their own experience over someone else's experience. So I may recognize that, you know, an emotion or, uh, you know, that somebody's experiencing this thing. But at the lowest level of empathy, what, what our mirror neurons give us the ability to do is, is recognize that, but then I'm laying over my experience. So even though I might say, oh, I know exactly how you feel. Well, not really. I know how you feel yeah. because of how I felt in that same situation. So then if you move up a level to, uh, affective empathy it's it's being able to react right so so like a take a baby that's crying for example we can see that baby and understand that that baby might be hungry so then we react so we're at least now taking a, a step of action but it's a reaction and then the final step where we want people to get to is compassionate empathy being able to recognize that there is pain in someone else or that someone else is going through something, but not layering in my own experience, remaining logical, and then proactively coming up with solutions to help that person. And I think that just applies amazingly here because it, it is a mindset shift. And it's a mindset shift that not only people in leadership, people in government have to embrace, but it's also a mindset that we individually have to embrace to then go out and be able to seek all of those different perspectives or want to. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that the way that everyone could take a little bit home from the journalism toolbox that we're trying to get people to use is to recognize that, um, yeah, it's not about a political correctness. It's not about um, making the other person feel good, but that if you've been carrying around really inaccurate views about something, that the product that you're going to put out is going to be inaccurate too. So if someone is coming to you and saying, yeah, that's really wrong, that's biased, or do you understand that what you're saying right now is kind of racist or that this reproduces stereotypes, that rather than immediately reacting, thinking of this person as you know, calling you out or a troublemaker, that trying to understand where they're coming from is going to make whatever the thing that you're doing ultimately better, you know, that you don't want to have a biased output that you don't want your story to be racist that you know rather than going like oh my god they called me racist now i have to react to this by explaining that i have black friends or whatever that you try to understand where they're coming from first because you're looking for accuracy that having an article or a um or a story or whatever or a report that's racist it's not only just wrong because racism is bad it's also wrong because it's inaccurate right <laughs> racism is inaccurate it's not real it's not true it, it produces distortions in the truth, right? So, and that, that prevents us from getting to yeah. solutions. It prevents us from seeing reality and that that's what we're trying to avoid more than the personal hurt or upset about being you know, called out. But um, yeah, I wanted to say also with coronavirus that I think there's kind of two other really interesting things going on 
in journalism, but more generally. One, that people are working from home, a lot of times working with their kids, and that a lot of offices have made this possible, and people are going, oh, okay, so I was told that my disability couldn't be accommodated, I couldn't work from home, or I was told that it would be impossible for me to take two days off a week so I could spend time with my infant, but now it's all possible, and it's possible for everybody. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, apparently, <exactly. laughs> and some people are finding that they refer, they prefer it, right? I mean, some workplaces are going like, why would we go back to the office? Um, right, and, man. And the second thing that's happening from the journalism perspective is that just that thing that I was talking about before, how um, if someone from the United States who wants to cover, you know, the coup attempt in Venezuela, they jump on the airplane, they fly to Venezuela to cover the story. Well, you can't jump on an airplane and fly to Venezuela right now. So you're going to have to work with local journalists, right, that are already there. And that's the same for all over the world. So we're seeing what's happening is that people are forced to do kind of what we've been asking journalists to do all the time is <laughs> collaborate with people that are from those countries to tell their own stories. You're going to get more interesting stories. You're going to get more nuance and you're going to get perspectives that you weren't aware of. And because of that, you're going to have more accuracy. And now, because of coronavirus, it's not even an option to do it the other way. So people are really right. already doing it. So we're hoping so that people are going to learn. Like, I can trust people from other countries yeah. to tell their own stories. I can trust journalists who have the same background as the story I'm reporting on to actually be trusted to tell their own narratives. So you're, uh, you're, you're saying that the pandemic is almost like leveling the playing field? Is that what, what, is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> well, I think... It, <laughs> very, uh, very modestly and perhaps very narrowly, because of course, a lot of journalists are also losing their jobs and their commissions right now, right? So there's yeah. that negative side of it as well. Um, but I hope that what people will take out of this, and you know, we have been pushing for years, like, you know, you, you should work with this guy in Nigeria, you should work with this person. And they go, well, how can I trust someone? And I always go, how can you trust someone from Germany, right? They, they send in a pitch, you see if you like their work or not. It's not like Germans are inherently more trustworthy than Nigerians, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no distinction. You still have to base it on what their work product is. But now I think people are uh, more willing to take that leap. And once you've done it and you realize like, oh, I can work with someone from Brazil or United States or Haiti without um, having met them or having them be endorsed by somebody else that I know and the work product is good, that may create indeed more opportunities for up and coming journalists from all over the world. I really hope so. Yeah, this has been incredible. I, yeah, Tina, thank you so much uh, for, for talking to us. And I think, yeah, we will need to probably talk more again at some point and catch up. But yeah, I, I think, we, I, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for the world to sort of change direction in the right way. We talk about it with organizations all the time. You know, it's, it really is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reboot, um, or even, you know, start these initiatives that, that give everyone a voice and that give everyone, as Mike always talks about, give everyone a chance to participate in our modern world. Absolutely. And, you know, journalism is such a, oh, such an amazing window into that. And it applies, I think, across everything we're dealing with now, just as individuals, as people who are working, um, it's just, there's so many stories to be told and so many different perspectives, like you said. Yeah, and so, I didn't even get that much into a lot of the um, examples from the book, and I have, they have dozens. I'd love to talk to you guys again. It was also very interesting for me to hear what you guys are working on. And um, I would also really recommend, if you haven't done so, there's an article by Arundhati Roy, 
uh, about the article is called the pandemic is a portal and in it she makes this kind of metaphor that we're in this sort of liminal space right now we're going to walk out on the other end out of the portal of the coronavirus and the question is what do we want to leave behind and what do we want to take with us to the other yeah. side yeah mm -hmm. oh, i love it yeah. yeah and this is what i've been thinking about a lot uh during can this you, process what can we take can you, to the other sorry go ahead no i just can we can we get that article is uh, can you send that over uh to us yes. please tina i'll email that to you afterwards definitely yeah. I Thank think, you. Yeah, Come on. yeah. We'll, and we'll, we'll send it out to everybody as well. Yeah, Tina, yeah, let's definitely come back together um, again soon. We can talk more about the book specifically and, and maybe, uh, you know, I love this idea of, of how we can help people. Like, what are solutions? <laughs> the solution journalism idea is just fascinating to me. Like, how we can help people even, you know, put together a, a, a small toolkit to, to get started in your organization and then use kind of what you all have learned through journalism to help people do that. So we'll oh, um, absolutely. We'll yeah. I'll send you a link back. to the solutions journalism network as well. Um, because okay. I think that that's also something for businesses quite interesting to think about, um, you know, where can I investigate what other people are doing well in order to compare and apply that to my own work without oh, judging them because, because of the fact that they're different or deal with a slightly different situation. You know, I think that's absolutely. really useful. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Tina, again. It was a pleasure. Um, you know, I hope you and your family are doing well in, in Germany. And um, again, yeah, we, we look forward to the next time. So thank you, everybody, for listening in. Thank Bye, you. Everyone. Bye. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, UB. Thanks, Tina. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can see closed captioning for this podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find us online on our website, chooseinclusion.com, and contact us on Twitter at chooseinclusion.